Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called Morenevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, this is Danielle Karapkin uh, speaking to you uh, from Thornhill, Ontario for webyeshiva.com. I want to apologize, but once again, we had a sound malfunction for this morning's shear in Morinavuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, Section 2, Chapter 26. So I've decided to re-record the entire shear so that it becomes completely legible for our listeners. Uh, the only disadvantage that I have is because I'm doing this on a recording using a simple camera on my computer, I will not uh, be posting any screenshots um, uh, and so we'll be going over the handout um, orally, and that means that if you want to be able to follow along with the handout, all I ask is that you download the handout from one of two locations. One is the Facebook community called Shi'ur in Morenavuchim for Chapter 26, Section 2, um, and the other one would be the webyeshiva.org course description for this particular chapter in section two. Once again, chapter 26. It's in the Pines edition on page 330. And just to get our bearings as to where we are, the Rambam in the last several chapters has uh, sort of emerged as having rejected the Aristotelian model of creation, or the lack of creation, I should say. Aristotle subscribed to an eternal universe model. That is, that God has eternally and necessarily without sentience and without will, emanated the perfection of the universe that we see in an, uh, both in this world and in the cosmos as well. Um, the Rambam was able to effectively argue against that, and that's where we find ourselves now. We also should point out that up until now, our emphasis has been on two out of three models that the Rambam has presented to us as to the origins of the universe. The creation narrative, the Rambam reads it clearly as a creatio ex nihilo, as a yesh me'ayin, or something from nothing, that God created in a very mysterious way that we don't comprehend because it defies the, all the laws of natural science, that God created that which exists out of absolute nothingness. That's the way the Rambam says we must subscribe as far as understanding God's interaction with our world, even to this very day, that God is a providential God and is a God is a God of will, and therefore, at his will, he created something from nothing. This is in direct opposition, the polar opposite of the Aristotelian model of an eternal universe that has always and necessarily emanated from uh, an eternal and unthinking and unwilled God. Um, but there's a middle position, and that is the one of Plato that Rambam has quoted a number of times leading up to our chapter, chapter 26, and that is Plato is of the belief that there was a creation episode, there was a creation event, but it was a creation from primordial matter that pre-existed the creation event. And that primordial matter, according to Plato, also has 
always existed, but as unformed matter and what creation, the creation event that happened X number of thousands of years ago or X whatever, how many years ago, transformed the unformed matter, this primordial matter, into the formed matter that we see all around us, both in our world and in the celestial realm. Now, the Rambam had told us that, A, there's no reason to subscribe to the Platonic model uh, because the simple reading of the text does not lend itself, the biblical text does not lend itself to, to the Platonic model. But, he said at the same time, if a person were to wish to read it or to understand the creation story according to Plato, he would not be accused of anything heretical, going against the basic beliefs in God as a God of providence who can insert himself willfully into creation. Because even according to Plato, God willed that there be this transformation from formless matter to formed matter at the creation event. So that's where we are. At this point, the Rambam is going to introduce us to a Midrash that he had alluded to many, many chapters ago, all the way back in section 1, chapter 28. And we're now actually going to spend more time unpacking this Midrash, and I'm going to read the, the Rambam introduces it as follows. I ha, Again, page 330 in the Pines edition. I have seen a statement of Rabbi Eliezer the Great figuring in the celebrated chapters or known as Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which is, and he says, if I look at a midrash in this midrashic text called Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, authored ostensibly by the, the great Rabbi Eliezer, um, first century Tana or, or uh, rabbi of the Mishnaic period, he says it is the strangest statement I have seen made by one who follows the law or the Torah of our master Moshe, of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, that's a very bold statement. The Rambam is saying this is the most bizarre midrash I've ever seen coming from rabbinic literature. So that's worthy of our attention, wouldn't you say? So here is the midrash, and I'll read it for you in its original Hebrew. It's Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, Perik Gimel, chapter 3. And the question that the midrash asks is, Shamayim, me'eze makom nivra'u. From what place was heaven created? Or what was heaven created from? And the Medrash answers, Me'or levusho, it comes from the light of God's garment, shohu lavush, that God was wearing a garment, and lakach uperas kesimla, and God took that garment and spread it out like a bedsheet or some other kind of very large piece of fabric, vahayu motchin veholchin ad she'amar lahendai, and this, this light spread out like you would spread out a sheet, but instead of it stopping at some point, it kept spreading out further and further and further, expanding, until God said, stop. V'nikra el shadai misha omer la'olam dai. And that is the reason why one of God's names, one of his holy names, is el shadai, the God who said, stop. Because that, in a sense, is descriptive of the creation of the heavens. This is very much, very reminiscent of the Big Bang Theory, but we're not going to go into that now. But it certainly is descriptive of a universe that started at one very small midpoint and then exploded and expanded until the Creator said, Stop. Now, Shemeir Levusho, Shenemar Oteor Kasalma, and then the Medrash brings a pasuk, a verse, to support that this is the method 
by which God created the heavens. Now the Medrash asks a, the, a, a second question. Ha'aretz me'eze makom nivret. From where, or fr uh, from where was the earth created, or from what ingredient was the earth created? And the Medrash answers differently this time. Misheleg shetachat kisei kevodo. It comes from the snow that is beneath the glorious throne of God. Lokach vizarak al hamayim. God took this snow, threw it on the water. This this water that is described at the very opening of Genesis as this, the Ruach Elohim Mirachefet al that in the state of chaos and void, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. And as a result of the snow being scattered across this water, it's, it congealed, it solidified, and it became the dust of the earth. Quoting a, a verse in Job this time that describes this process. And that's the quote from the Medrash of called Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer. The Rambam, I'm going to divide this chapter into two parts, and we're just going to go through an outline because there's so much material for us to cover. First of all, the Rambam says, I quote, Would I know what that sage Rebbe Eliezer believed? I have no understanding of where he's coming from and why he needs to say this description of creation from primordial stuff in the way that he says it. And he says, really, is, Israel, is Rabbi Eliezer subscribing to the Platonic model, which I have difficulty swallowing after I just told you in our last chapter that I don't think that it's necessary nor appropriate to subscribe to, the, to Plato's description. He says, but either way, this is puzzling. And I'm just breaking it down as the, as the uh, outline presents it. If he believes that it is problematic to believe in creation ex nihilo, and that is why he said that our world was created from primordial matter. Now, listen, there is an inherent problem of saying, and Plato had the same problem, of saying that the world was created from, prim, from absolute nothing. It defies all the laws of natural science. Why would God step so far outside of natural law in order to create the world? And maybe that's the reason why you want to suggest that the world was created from primordial matter. But we would have to ask him, from what was this primordial matter created? Where did the light of God's garment and the snow under the throne come from? Where did the throne come from? Ultimately, he'd have to submit at some point that these primordial ingredients were also created. And if they were created, then they were created from nothing. Um, then the primordial matter from which, the, the if, if not, that, that there was some point of creatio ex nihilo, of yesh me'ayin creation, if not the world, then these primordial ingredients. So really, the, my question is like this, says the Rambam. If Rabbi Eliezer believes that the world was created from these primordial ingredients that are identified in the Medrash as being God's light or the snow under the throne, where did they come from? And if God created them, then if you if your whole problem is creation yesh me'ayin ex nihilo, then at some point you're still going to have that same problem. Point, uh, and point number two, maybe you'll answer that Rabbi Eliezer does not hold that these primordial ingredients were ever created. Maybe they eternally existed, just like Plato said. And that's my problem. He would be subscribing to the Platonic model of creation but the, at the same time believing in the eternality of certain primordial things. And so that's, I mean, it's possible that he subscribes to that, but the Rambam 
has difficulty swallowing that, especially after rejecting Plato in the last chapter as, as not being a viable reading of the biblical text. I'm going to present the second challenge that the Rambam has. He says, and the nature of the throne is somewhat problematic because on the one hand, the sages in other places in Medrash, and it's not just Rabbi Eliezer, they acknowledge that the throne, the Kisei HaKavod, God's divine throne, was a creation for the sake of our world. It has not existed eternally, even though they submit that it predated creation. So um, if we take a look at a couple of Talmudic passages, there's one uh, Gemara in Tractate Psachim, page 54a, which where the Braita over there says, Shiva Dvarim Nivru'u Kodem Shenivraha Olam that there were seven things that were created before the world was created. Now, I will grant you that the simple reading of the text, because so many of the things of the seven on the list are conceptual things, non-physical items, you would think that it's describing ideas that God created before he created the world. Torah, Tshuva, um, Beit HaMikdash, Shemoshel Mashiach, the name of the Messiah. And one of those seven is also the Kisei HaKavod. The Rambam is taking this quite literally, just like he's taking the Medrash of Rabbi Eliezer quite literally and saying that the, through this, there's some depiction of a throne that it pre-exists our world, but it also states in the Talmud that they were created by God. So Rabbi Eliezer does have support in other uh, Talmudic texts. Uh, another text that the Rambam is making reference to is the Medrash in Bereshit Rabbah, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 4. Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created, shishad varim kadmu olam, there were six things that predated the existence of the world or the creation of the world, and two of them were not just thoughts of God, but were actual structural creations. And the, uh, the Medrash identifies the Torah, the law itself, and the Kisei HaKavod and the Divine Throne were actually created things. So on the one hand, says the Rambam, my supposition that Rabbi Eliezer is calling the throne and the light and the snow uh, all created items is not ameliorated in any way because he has rabbinic support. He does, however, say, in the next point that he makes, that scripture, even though rabbinic literature calls the throne a created item, scripture itself does not allude to the created nature of the throne except for one verse in Psalms, which implies that it was created and predated the world. But that verse could be interpreted metaphorically, so I'm not going to get into that, says the Rambam. But we do know from Scripture that the throne will last eternally. Now, um, we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 27, that there is a division philosophically when you talk about something that is eternal. You, you either call it a parte post or a parte ante. Now, what those two terms mean, they're Latin terms, what they mean is something has eternally existed, that's a parte ante, that it has existed eternally going back in time, or you can say that it will eternally exist in the future a parte post. Now, we know that, first of all, it's not automatic that just because something has always existed, it will always exist, and vice versa. We know from Scripture, from the book of Echa, from Lamentations, chapter 5, that the throne of God will exist for all eternity. Because it says, Ata Hashem le'olam te'shev kis'acha le'dor vador. 
that you, God, will exist eternally. Your throne will be from generation to generation. But that doesn't necessarily mean, says the Rambam, that the throne has existed eternally, a parte ante. The problem in suggesting this, if we were to suggest, and this is really a continuation of the first question, if we were to suggest that Rabbi Eliezer subscribes to the Platonic model of God creating uh, all of that exists from primordial matter that has eternally existed, a parte ante, always and forever, then the Rambam says we have to equate God's throne, if it has truly existed eternally, as really just being an attribute of God, because nothing exists outside of God before creation. And if that's the case, how can an attribute of God generate something like snow, primordial snow, which is a material item? How can it generate matter? An attribute of God cannot generate matter. And that's the difficulty that is the Rambam is getting stuck with. So essentially, either the uh, throne and the snow and the light of the garment that are being described in the Medrash are created items, which is problematic because ultimately you're going to have to submit to creation yesh me'ayin at some point of those primordial ingredients, or you're going to say they've eternally existed, but that's also problematic because how does an eternally existent thing like the throne emanate and cause the creation of something which is material? And, he, and then the Rambam says, strangest of all of this medrash is the phrase, the light of God's garment, which he doesn't really elaborate on why that's so strange, but, he's, but perhaps we would assume that the Rambam is very much against any kind of anthropomorphisms of God because of his distancing of corporeality from God, and therefore the Rambam is, is uh, uh, sort of most overcome in the bizarreness of this medrash by talking about the heavens being created by the light of God's garment. And therefore, he says, and just quoting what he says on page 331, this Midrashic statement will confuse very much indeed the belief of a learned man who adheres to the Torah. No persuasive figurative interpretation with regard to it has become clear to me. Now let me just point out, there are a number of commentaries who do provide figurative interpretations of this Midrash. I don't believe the Rambam meant to say that he was completely unaware of those explanations. I think he really means to say that I really don't find any of the interpretations that I've heard really that satisfying as to what really what Rebbe Eliezer is trying to accomplish by this depiction of creation. Now, as much as, and, and certainly because, the Rambam seems to have said in the previous chapter that he's very unhappy with those who would want to fit the Platonic model of creation into a Torah framework, because the, the text of the Torah clearly for the Rambam is implying a creation of yesh me'ayin at the time of creation and not from primordial matter. I do want to, however, point something out very important, and I have the text uh, actually copied in our handout today, which again, unfortunately, I'm not able to post on the screen. Uh, but there is a verse in the Song of Songs, in the book of Shir HaShirim, chapter 3, which is a very short verse which states as follows, That the king Solomon has made for himself a palace from the, sea, the wood of the cedars, of uh, the wood of the Lebanon. Now, Simply put, it means that King Solomon built himself a palace made out of wood from the Lebanon forest. But the Ramban 
in his commentary to Shir HaShirim, understands it on a Kabbalistic level or a proto-Kabbalistic level, that the book of Shir HaShirim, anytime you find the citation of King Solomon, it's really a reference to God himself. And this particular verse, according to the Ramban, is a depiction of how God created his palace, meaning his world wherein he resides for the sake of mankind. He quotes a couple of Midrashim. One of them is the Midrash that the Rambam quoted from Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer. And then he says, after having quoted the Midrash, he says, and I quote, Vehu al-da'at apalton. This Medrash of Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer subscribes to the opinion of Plato. Ha'omer ki shavhu habore davar milo davar. That Plato came to his conclusion that God created from primordial matter because he felt that it was simply inappropriate to suggest that the God who creates natural law should so dramatically depart from those natural laws by creating yesh me'ayin or ex nihilo. He says, and therefore he concluded that there must be a primordial material that God used to create the world. And this primordial matter is like clay for the potter or iron for the blacksmith. Who can therefore form out of it whatever he likes. Cain, it's almost reminiscent of the liturgy that we recite on Yom Kippur. Think about it, the night of um, Kol Nidre. Cain haborei yitbarach yitzayer min hachomer shamayim va'aretz, upam yitzayer mimenu zulatize. And therefore, God took this primordial material, and he can do with it as he wishes. He can create from it heaven and earth, and he can also create other things other than heaven and earth from it, and here the Ramban may be implying that there are previous or later existences that God will use from the same primordial matter. Now, let's be very clear, says the Ramban. I have no hang-up about the Platonic model. And the reason I have no hang-up is because there's no the, the accusation might be against Plato. You're limiting God. By saying that God would not create from yesh me'ayin, from nothing, implies that God can't. He says, not at all. He says there, that we are not at all suggesting that God cannot, but he chose not to. There's no limitation. of. Uh, we're not limiting God when we suggest that God cannot do certain things that are physically impossible or go against the laws of physics. For example, we accept the fact that God created a structure and physical laws such that, for example, you can't have a square where the hypotenuse, the diagonal of the square, is the same length as one of the sides of the square. That's simply mathematically, geometrically impossible. This is not a limitation of God, but these are the rules that God imparted within all of existence. Or, or to assemble two completely opposite components of creation in the same spot in the, at the same time. Similarly, it's not a diminution or limitation of God by suggesting that God wanted to use material, 
with which to create all of existence, all of material existence, because creatio ex nihilo is going against the very grain of the physical laws of nature. And if God is creating nature with creation, we expect him to uh, uh, comply and to conform to those very laws of nature at the time of creation. That's the premise that the Ramban says that both Plato was working under and Rebbe Eliezer and those who are like him among our sages as well. And that's what King Solomon meant when he said that God created the great palace from the trees or from the wood of the Lebanon, that that's what this, this trees of the Lebanon are this primordial matter. And the Ramban goes a little bit further, but we're going to leave it there at this time. So, a very interesting divide, whereas the Rambam is perturbed and puzzled by this medrash of Rabbi Eliezer in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, the Ramban actually has no problem with it at all, and seemingly is willing to completely accept this idea that when we talk about creation from a Jewish or Torah perspective, it is completely acceptable to suggest that creation was not creatio ex nihilo, but was rather creation from a primordial matter, perhaps that even has eternally existed. Now, I do want to point out something else, and that is, now let's go to part two of this chapter. And part two of this chapter is that the Rambam basically tells us, despite the fact that I find this Midrash troubling, nonetheless, there is a benefit to be garnered from this Midrash. And I quote, the author has rendered us a great service by making it quite clear that the matter of the heavens is other than that of the earth and that they are altogether distinct matters, meaning the heavens which are closer to God are made from a more ethereal material, that's the light of God's garment, and the earth which is more distant from God is made of a more flawed and coarse material, what we would call prime matter or hule in Greek, which is depicted as the snow beneath the throne of God. Now, the, Ram, the Rambam is very um, invested in this idea, and he says the Medrash is confirming Aristotelian science, because Aristotle asserted that uh, the heavens and the earth are two completely different realms made up of completely different matter. If you'll recall from the end of section one, the Rambam was entered into a disputation with a group of uh, Islamic philosophers called the Mutikalimun, who believed that the universe is completely uniform in its constitution, that there aren't two different realms made up of two different kinds of stuff, but rather everything is atoms, and all of those atoms are uniform throughout the universe. The Rambam had completely rejected that and said, no, Aristotle says that the material that makes up our world is one kind of um, material, and the material that makes up the heavens is a more ethereal, completely different kind of material with different laws. And the Rambam now looks at this medrash and is very appreciative that this medrash, despite its peculiarities, certainly confirms the Aristotelian depiction of two completely different realms. And now let's go back to what the Rambam had written back in Moren of Uchim, uh, section 1, chapter 28. Because this is really the first place where we saw the Rambam cite this medrash. Now, if you go back to that chapter, and you can find it in the Pines edition uh, uh, on page, I believe it's page 60, 61, 
is where the Rambam goes into this discussion. The beginning of that chapter, which starts on page 59, was really the Rambam describing the word regel in Hebrew. The word regel means foot or leg, but it is used in the context of God sometimes in Scripture. And of course, we know that this part of Moreh Nebuchim in the very beginning chapters are dedicated to removing any sense of corporeality or physical attributes from God. So, obviously, if you encounter a verse in the Tanakh that says that God has a foot, you have to reinterpret it and understand it to be metaphorical and not to be taken literally. And that's really what the Rambam devotes uh, uh, this chapter to, trying to explain the word regel in the context of God. And one of the verses that he quotes is a verse from Exodus chapter 24, where the, the Torah says, Vayiru eit Eloke Yisrael, that uh, in, in the events leading up to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, uh, the, the, the scripture states that a group of distinguished gentlemen, including Ne'arim, including some of the youths of Israel, who were sort of, I guess, in training to become the future elders, had some level of ascent to Mount Sinai, and they had a heavenly vision. They had a divine vision. And it says that they saw, they gazed upon the God of Israel. And what did they see? V'tachat raglav, beneath God's feet, kima'asei livnata sapir, was like the handiwork of sapphire brick, uche'etzem hashamayim latohar, and the, uh, the essence of the heavens in its purity. That's literally what the verse says. And the Rambam says, you see that those words, v'tachat raglav, underneath God's feet? We have to understand that to be figurative, metaphorical, because God doesn't have feet. When we say that something is from God's feet, it means it's, it's an emanation from God. Just like um, uh, something that uh, comes from me, I could say that it's tachat ragli, it's under my feet. It means that it's coming from me or I'm in control of it. Something that I release that is I'm in control of is under my feet. That's all that scripture means by saying that. And then the Rambam says, however, Unculus chose, who was the great Aramaic translator of the Bible, actually added some words into his translation of this verse. And again, for the sake of removing corporeality from God, says that the words, v'tachat raglav, beneath God's feet, does not at all mean anything directly related to God, but it's rather beneath the feet of the throne of God, which is a created essence that God made in order to be able to interface with our world, what was underneath that throne? There was the handiwork of sapphire, white sapphire stone. Now this is um, uh, essentially where the Rambam says, if we look at Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, at this medrash that we are focusing on in our chapter, we'll be able to get a proper interpretation of that verse in Exodus chapter 24. And he goes through, uh, and I refer you back to that chapter for a more lengthy uh, explanation of what's going on, but he says that there's a reason why the, uh, the verse translates or into the whiteness of a sapphire brick. And the reason it translates into the whiteness of a sapphire brick does not mean that the, the sapphire, that the vision of they had of the sapphire stone was of a white color, but rather it means it was completely transparent. And what is being described by the Rambam uh, 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 in this verse is that, and I just read it for you, 
It refers to the transparency, not the white color. For the whiteness of the sapphire is not a white color, but the property of being transparent. Things which are transparent have no color of their own. And, if, and therefore what it's trying to describe is a kind of unformed matter that has been completely uninfluenced by God's imbuing it with form. Just like something which is colorless does not have the form of color, so too this, this, uh, this um, material that they gazed upon underneath God's throne is that very same kind of hule, of unformed matter, primordial matter, that God used to create the world. And that's actually what perhaps Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer was referring to. And that's really the benefit of the Rambam actually bringing this uh, verse now, because essentially what he wants to explain to us is that not only has this Medrash sort of corroborated um, Aristotelian, the Aristotelian belief that heaven and earth are made up of two different kinds of material, but also um, it actually, this Medrash, as bizarre as it is, helps us to understand that the Torah, in talking about the vision of these people who ascended Mount Sinai, are really seeing some kind of primordial matter that is the, that is the stuff that makes up all of creation. And what they were having was some kind of vision of, of the fact that our world is really A, an emanation of God, but really a construct that is based on something that is much holier and much more pure than what we see in this very variegated and disparate world of, of constructed items. And therefore, what they, the nobles of the children of Israel, perceived was therefore the materia prima, was this prime matter whose relation to God is distinctly mentioned. I'm just reading from chapter 28 because it is the source of those of his creatures which are subject to genesis and destruction and has been created by him. Okay, and he says this subject also will be treated later on more fully because he does in that chapter quote our chapter, uh, which quotes the Medrash of, of uh, Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer. And in the final uh, paragraph of our chapter, the Rambam just concludes by saying as follows, there are two other Midrashim that are cited in the name of Rabbi Eliezer. And these two later Midrashim are actually um, good complements to the Medrash and Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer. Because both these Midrashim, one in Bereshit Rabbah, chapter 12, and the other one in the Talmud tractate Yoma, page 54b, both make reference to the fact that Rabbi Eliezer says, Kol mashiyesh bashamayim bruyatomina shamayim, kol mashiyesh ba'aretz bruyatomin ha'aretz. Everything that you find in the heavens, the planets, the stars, the orbits, the spheres, etc., everything that is in the heavens is made from the material of the heavens. And everything that is in the earth, the plants, the trees, the animals, etc., the earth, everything else, comes from the same material that makes up all of the earth. And this, too, confirms this idea that Aristotle was promulgating that the earth and the heavens are made up of two completely different materials. And the only thing that the Rambam says is that the reason why this Medrash of Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer is actually giving us additional information is because whereas these other Midrashim quoting Rebbe Eliezer just say that they're made up of two different kinds of matter, in his chapters, Rebbe Eliezer clearly states this one additional subtlety, one additional subtle point. And I mean to say 
the sublimity of that matter and its nearness to him, referring to that heavenly matter because it's closer to God, it's described as the light of his garment, a much closer form of emanation and more ethereal and immaterial than the material of our earth. That's the reason why, because of its closeness to God being in the celestial realm, is of a more ethereal nature. And, he says, and the defectiveness of the other and also the place where it is located. The defectiveness of the material of our world, which is subject to generation and corruption constantly, it is of a lesser quality or lesser perfection than the heavenly realm, which is an eternal, made up of eternal matter. Our realm is made up of sort of a more defective matter, which is subject to generation and corruption. And that's what uh, is implied by suggesting that one kind of matter is the light of God's garment, and the other kind of matter is the snow from under the throne. Two very lofty concepts but one clearly much closer of an emanation from God than the snow that is under the throne, underneath God's feet, as it were, kaviachal. In any event, what we've accomplished in this chapter is to demonstrate that A, the Rambam, as puzzled as he is by uh, any one of our sages suggesting the Platonic model as being a viable way of viewing creation, nonetheless seems forced to concede that it is possible that one of our sages may have subscribed to it, even though he doesn't understand it, uh, why that would be, and it remains a big mystery to him. And secondly, uh, he has been um, vindicated in his subscription to Aristotle vis-a-vis -vis the, the vast difference in substance between the heaven and the earth. Now, we did make mention uh, in a very small way to this idea of eternity, both eternity going backwards and eternity going forwards in this chapter. We will continue that discussion, Amir Tzah Hashem, in chapter 27. We'll see you next time. Thank you.